Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, uh, culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be joined again by James Emanuel Shapiro. James, thank you for coming back to the show. You've been on a couple times. We like to bring the good guests back. So, uh, you know, uh, you've, you've made the cut. Congratulations. It's my honor. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to talk to you because I, I had tweeted something about con or, or can or cans, however uh, you want to pronounce it. I'm, I'm down with, I'm not a, a snob on that. Um, uh, and you you replied that you you know you were sad that you weren't going to be able to go this year, and it got me thinking. I know what I know what festivals are like from a journalistic point of view. I know what it's like from the film critics' point of view, but I don't really know what it's like from uh, a distribution point of view or a purchase purchaser's point of view or anything like that. I don't know anything about the business of festivals, really. Really, I don't. I, I, it's a thing I don't know very much about. Um, so I'm curious to get your, your take and your POV on it from uh, somebody who has worked for uh, studios that has had films in, you know, in 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 festivals looking to be sold and bought and that sort of thing. What what is what do you when you look at the lineup at Con this year? What what jumps out at you as like that's going to be expensive? That's not going to be expensive. That you know that's going to be uh, something people fight over. What are we? What are, what should people be looking for? Well, I mean, I think that there's two parts to this, which is you know there are festivals. You know, like there's Sundance and Toronto and, and Cannes and, um, you know, there's genre festivals like Fantasia and, and then there's regional film festivals, you know, like that can go all the way down to, you know, small cities, you know, that are just playing movies, you know, and, and trying to share movies with local audiences or very specific audiences. And then there's film markets where there's three major film markets, you know, for global distribution. And that is AFM, which takes place in Santa Monica in November. And then there's Berlin or Berlin Alley, which is in February um, in Berlin. And then there's Cannes, which, you know, is usually in May. Uh, and so it's three times spread equally out throughout the whole year. So what goes on in the market is very much about buying and selling movies, you know, where you were sort of going with your question versus what's playing at the Cannes Festival, which some of those movies are available and some mm -hmm. of those movies will be sold. But the big sales will always end up coming out of the market aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So when you are going to Sundance, you're going to the festival and you are trying to buy the movies at the festival if you're in distribution. But if you're going to one of those three, you know, festivals slash markets that I mentioned before, you're, you're mostly spending your time actually in the market part of it, which, you know, that's where, um, like some buyers have gone in and literally come out with 30 movies, you know, and maybe only one or two of them are playing in the, the Cannes film festival. Um, so what am I like sad that I'm missing? Um, I mean, there, there's something special about can, you know, like a, a lot of us are in this business because we really do love movies. And our ultimate goal is to try to get movies to 
as wide of an audience as possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these are conventions. And if you've had an experience with conventions, it's putting a lot of people in, you know, sort of like a crowded space and you're supposed to, you know, create social environments to try to inspire business to happen. And that's exactly what these film markets are, except they're happening on an international basis, you know, in the south of France or in Berlin, which is one of the, you know, great cities of the world. And then Santa Monica, which... um, Santa Monica's nice. We don't have to... Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's funny, though. I mean, if you will talk to the French about Cannes, they view Cannes the same way people who live in Los Angeles view Santa Monica, which is just sort of like this cheesy, uh, you know, beach town, you know, that everybody sort of gets frustrated that they have to go to if they live in Los Angeles. It's the same thing if you live in France. You're you're not a big fan of Cannes. So all the Americans go in and they'll be like, oh, my God, this is so beautiful and the food is so great. And the French are like, yeah, you're just Americans. Um, (laughs) So... You know, it's a privilege to get to go to these places and it's a privilege to get to see these movies, you know, before, um, you know, global audiences and you get to see them in environments that are uh, empowering to the filmmaker and the other creatives behind the movie in some beautiful theaters, you know, and some of them are, you know, where some of the best movies that have ever played got their world premiere. And so there's a real sense of history. So if you're in this business because you love movies, then getting to go to Cannes is a really magical experience. And that's what I'm missing. Well, can we can we can you talk about what the actual film market looks like? I mean, do they do they have like big group screenings where everybody comes in and watches the movies and then they're the people retreat to their corners and bid? I mean, like I what is the actual what are the actual mechanics like? Or is it just presentations? Does somebody just come in and say, like, I have the new uh, you know, Leo's Carex movie, right, or something like that, and say like, who wants it? You know, I like, I'm I'm curious what the what the actual what the actual mechanics and the format of it look like. Yeah, good question. It's both. So, you know, movies that are finished or pretty close to being finished, you know, will screen, and Can itself has, um, you know, twenty, thirty places you know, where you can screen movies. Um, Sometimes you'll be screening them in the main Palais Theater, you know, which is several hundred people. Uh, Or you could be screening them literally in a hotel conference room that's been set up with speakers and a screen to show DCPs uh, of the film. And that can be, you know, maybe a dozen people. you know, so you're you're watching it in that venue, and do you huddle in the corner right afterwards and buy a movie? Uh, sometimes. Um, I mean, I remember seeing the world premiere of uh, Sean Baker's uh, Florida Project uh, a mm-hmm. couple years ago at Cannes, and you could just see the distribution companies outside huddled together because the movie did win everybody over, and there was going to be an immediate interest you know, in that movie getting distribution. Um, And so at that point, you connect with whoever is selling the film, and sometimes it's sellers' agents, and sometimes it's uh, the producers directly. And, you know, you register some interest, you'll send a formal offer. uh, And, you know, if you have made an offer that the sales agent you know, feels is a valid offer, then usually the next step is there will be individual meetings 
with the distribution companies and the creators and the directors of the films where you will pitch yourself, you know, and what your distribution plan is for the film. And probably eight, nine times out of 10, it comes down to who's offering the most money, you know, Mm -hmm. but there are scenarios where you have won over the creators and they're going to want to work with you because you've told them something and you've won them over. So now you're going to distribute the film. And then your your other observation, you know, other presentations, if the movie's not finished, uh, you know, I mentioned that it's like a convention. There's a giant convention center where a bunch of sales companies have booths, you know, with posters and trailers, and you'll sit down and have like a 30-minute meeting where they'll pitch their slate to you. Um, or, you know, the, the larger sales companies will rent out... Uh, these apartments or build, um, you know, a place where the buyers can go sit down, you know, and, you know, again, you're in the south of France, you're right on the river, or I'm sorry, you're right on the ocean. Uh, So it's just, you know, like a beach setting. And so there are these beautiful views, you know, and the really expensive, you know, sales companies will rent out the best, you know, places. And, you know, again, it's supposed to be a very festive, you know, social atmosphere that's conducive to create business. And so they will show you presentations and they'll show you trailers. And then again, you know, the movie's not finished. They'll be able to show you a little bit of the film or they can share the script, you know, and share the the package, Mm -hmm. like who's making the movie, who's in the movie, you know, who's producing the movie, you know, perhaps a lookbook of what the director's trying to do, you know, and that can inspire sales as well. So people will be taking movies off the table before they're even completed. Yeah. When you, so you, you say eight, nine times out of 10, it's, it comes down to money, which understand, understandable. Everybody wants money and you don't, you don't make, you don't make movies to lose money. But I, I'm curious uh, what some of the other factors are for, for the other folks. I mean, it, what, when you, when you're a distribution company and you've got this, you know, you've got a Florida project type movie, um, how do you, how do you come to the director and entice them with you know, advertising, number of theaters, that sort of thing? Yeah, great question. Um, You know, there's an intrinsic philosophical battle happening inside of distribution uh, that I think we've discussed before, which is really streaming versus traditional distribution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we saw at Sundance this year, you know, with the really large sale of Coda, you know, going to Apple for $25 million dollars, you know, those conversations with distributors and the sales agents were literally like, you know, are the streamers going to make offers on this? Because if we get to, you know, 20 million, we're not even going to engage, you know, and it was like, yeah, the streamers are going to. So at that point, the only people interested in that film were streamers. So what you can try to offer to counter the fact that the streamers don't really have uh, a budget you know, for, you know, a title by title film is theatrical release, you know, in in a release that's going to give the filmmaker what they want, which a lot of times is getting their movies playing in theaters. Uh, But if you have a bunch of theatrical offers out there, you know, it's the reputation of the distributor, you know, companies like uh, independent companies like A24, you know, and Neon, that have won Best Picture, 
you know, are attractive because they have a track record of success and a track record of releasing films that get prestigious awards. There's, you know, the searchlights of the world and the focus features of the world that, you know, are parts of larger studios that have mechanisms, you know, that guarantee international broadcast revenue that become really attractive, you know, but if you're a smaller company and the movie's not selling to one of those bigger companies that I named, you know, then it really just comes down to a lot of times showing the passion and the affinity and quote unquote, getting the movie, you know, to the filmmaker, you know, there was one time in, you know, my specific career where, you know, they had an offer from Netflix and they were like, we're just going to sell the movie to Netflix. You know, your offer is one tenth of what Netflix is offering, you know, goodbye. And, you know, we still had a meeting on the books with the filmmaker. So we created a presentation which, you know, sold the film in terms of how we wanted to release it. Like we felt that the film was a slow burn, you know, a real mystery, uh, you know, with a crazy, you know, game changing twist in the third act. And we were like, we don't want to share that third act twist. We want to highlight the mystery. And the filmmakers immediately bought into what we were selling, you know, and, and got the way that we wanted to release the movie and what our creative, you know, our poster and our trailer was going to look like. And so they went back to the sales agent and they were like, look, we, we, we want to take the Netflix deal, but we also want to work with this other company. And the sales agent figured out a way to make it work that we could release some rights and then Netflix would take, you know, their rights on the film. And in that case, we won it over because the filmmakers believed in our strategy for the film. Mm -hmm. How did that, I mean, how did that work exactly? Did you guys get uh, a theatrical exclusivity or, yes. and then, and then yeah. Netflix got, you know, after 60 days or 90 days or whatever? Yeah. I mean, before COVID, they were really, you know, pretty set windows mm -hmm. um, of, right. you know, how right. everybody was releasing things, you know, theatrical, transactional, which is like iTunes and DVD and then broadcast. And the more Netflix has grown, the more the broadcast piece of those windows has really grown. And a lot of people are just selling their movies to Netflix and just releasing it directly on Netflix. But in this case, we got those first two windows. We got theatrical and transactional mm -hmm. and Netflix kept broadcast. Uh, so we got a 60 day window from the moment we released the movie to when it went to Netflix. And we could continue to sell the movie on DVD and transactional when it was on Netflix, but we needed that 60 days in order to have exclusivity in, on, in the transactional market. And in this case, it, it worked really well. You know, we made a lot of money on the movie and then the movie was really successful when it went to Netflix and even better, uh, you know, it was really well regarded by critics and it helped, you know, the filmmaker move back into indie filmmaking and help the writers get regarded as really talented, you know, writers when in the past they were, you know, doing, um, you know, a lot of studio fare, but this was like a passion project for them. And we were mm -hmm. able to change part of the narratives around their careers. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I assume since you haven't said it yet, you can't say. Well, you don't want to say what movie this is. So that was the invitation, the Karen oh, okay. Sama film. Okay. Yeah. 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 Good movie. Um, yeah. Thank you. 
and 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 yeah, that is that was a that was a big hit on Netflix. I remember once it hit Netflix, everyone talking about um, you know uh, uh, this this crazy new movie with the uh, the the crazy twist. Uh, so when you are um, what I just want to get I want to get a personal story from you about Netflix. I mean, I like or not Netflix. I'm sorry about Con, about Cans, about going to Cans and going to the festival and seeing what was something that you uh, that you saw or you encountered or 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 kind of took part in that like knocked your socks off and and you know kind of changed how you how you look at that that festival and or or the film in general. Uh, the world of film in general. Um, I mean, first of all, Cannes is just beautiful for me. You know, I mean, you you fly into Nice, and it's like the airport's on this little crop of land that sticks out into the ocean. So you're literally like landing on the ocean, you know, and it's the blue Mediterranean. So you're you're right away feeling special, you know, and you know, there's just an immense amount of gratitude that you feel for getting to be able to participate just right off the bat. Um, you know, and it's a beautiful French retirement, you know, community and, you know, it's just special that way. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I can think of two stories that are really film specific. One of them is, you know, we bought this, um, uh, Ukrainian film called the tribe, which, uh, is about two and a half hours long and it's all in Ukrainian sign language with uh, no subtitles. So it's not an easy movie for most audiences. And then the, the subject matter itself is pretty dark and it goes to some really, really dark places. So like the, the premiere of the film was filled with walkouts. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, just a lot of people were like right away, this is not for me, you know, but you know, the company I was working for at the time, we were very edgy and very provocative and were willing to take a chance on it. And, you know, the, the lead actress was in attendance and was sitting there watching the movie. And, you know, the whole cast is uh, deaf. So, um, you know, she's watched the movie and, you know, the movie ends. And like with most canned movies, it, it's getting a standing ovation with the people that are, didn't walk out. Mm -hmm. And she stands up, you know, but she can't hear the applause. So she starts uh, waving her hands, you know, in gratitude because that's how deaf people, you know, clap because you can't clap because it doesn't mean anything or you can't hear the noise. Yeah. So that's like a visual uh, way of appreciation. And, you know, I'm, I'm like leaving the theater and I'm watching this happen and I'm really moved by how she's moved by this expression and I go right from the theater to the convention hall to talk to the sales agent. Cause I'm like, you know, like, look, I, I love the movie. And they were actually looking my name up at the moment that I got in front of them. Mm -hmm. uh, because they were familiar with our distribution company and they wanted to make sure that, you know, they probably saw that my name had been scanned, you know, when I went into the theater. So it was just really great timing. And um, of course we ended up buying the movie and releasing it. and. Uh, so, I mean, that was, that was really, really special, you know, just to go from the emotion of seeing something that hit me very powerfully that I felt like had a strong release strategy 
you know, being moved by the artists at the, the venue and then going right to the business part of it and making a connection that just was kind of random. So yeah. that's one. Yeah. The other one is a movie I didn't see that was not available where the last time I was at Cannes, the Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood film had its world premiere. And, you know, France is, still has this like inherent class system built into it and Cannes sure. really embraces that. Uh, so if you are a badge holder at Cannes, you're in this like hierarchy for getting into the main theaters and, and into the main screenings. So like for Once Upon a Time in America, you know, the tickets are going to be given away to, you know, the people that are at the very top, you know, mm -hmm. and for the last couple of years, I've been in the third tier, uh, which was not big enough for me to get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I was uh -huh. like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to wait in line, you know, for it. Uh, so got up really early in the morning uh, for the second screening and got in the waitlist line. And I was like, I don't know, 30th in line. And I'm, I'm there with a bunch of people that are, you know, just going to Cannes and this is their vacation and they're going to Cannes because, you know, the best movies in the world are getting their world premieres there and they just want to see them first. So I hung out for four hours with a bunch of people that are just there, not for business, but, but for out of love of film. And none of us got into the screening. Like the entire waitlist line was turned away. Mm. But it was a really wonderful couple of hours for me just to be able to be with people that were not there for business. So that's a, yeah. a great reason for well, me to I, love it as well. You mentioned this, and, and it, it gets me thinking about the, the current state of festivals and, and kind of how everything is going right now. I mean, like right now, Tribeca is doing a, a kind of virtual festival. I think there is some in-person in stuff, but, they, but they, you know, they're also doing a, a virtual thing, which on the one hand is great for people who can't go to Tribeca. Like, I, I'm in Dallas. I'm, I'm not going to be able to go to Tribeca, so maybe I'll try and catch a screening of The Werewolves Within or, or something. All right, you know, but like... At the same time, it does kind of eliminate the whole point of a festival, you yeah. know, being around people, being making those connections, making making those people. Can can the festival ideal survive uh, the internet age? I mean, I'm I, I I wonder if this is just another thing that COVID has kind of accelerated the uh, the possible demise of. Uh, you know, Sonny, these are nothing but great questions. I mean, th th this is an inherent. <laughs> challenge right now which you know we can't not do virtual film festivals anymore like we have mm -hmm. to keep doing it and the main right. reason why is you know i talk a lot on this podcast about like the privilege of getting to go and, and the gratitude that you feel for getting to go there's a cost associated with going that an average movie lover can't hit like they're being able to get to afford to fly to France, you know, have an accommodation there, you know, for the two weeks of the festival, you know, and, and pay for the pass is, is probably more than most average film goers can do. Sundance is the same way, you know, like this passes at Sundance are a thousand bucks. So the virtual pass at Sundance was not a thousand dollars, you know, and so you had a lot of people get to participate in Sundance this year that have never been able to participate before. And you can't cut those people off at this point. You know, you you have to have a component for them. Like, 
you just can't go back now. The Pandora's box is open. And I mean, and that's a good thing. So what I think festivals are going to have to do is they're going to have to create like a dual event, you know, where they're going to have an in-person event, you know, where, you know, the movies are screened in a theater, which is what the filmmakers want. And then immediately after that, you know, like maybe a couple days, maybe a week, you know, then you put it up on the virtual platform for the virtual uh, pass holders to engage in it. So what else can you do for those virtual pass holders that help create an environment that recreates the other things about these festivals that make them special in person? And that is a really, really, really big challenge. Being able to say, we're gonna do the premiere in person first and then we'll do it virtually, that's kind of like the easy thing to work out. But like I work at a festival called Fantastic Fest and you know, it, it is very much a, an in-person special event. So there's a lot of events that go along with the screening of the movies. Like there's one event called the Fantastic Debates where two people get into a boxing ring will yell at each other for five minutes about, you know, who's cooler, samurais or cowboys. And then after they're done debating, they will put on boxing gloves and then punch each other for three minutes. And then the audience votes on who wins. So <laughs> it's one of the most popular events at Fantastic Fest, but how do you recreate that virtually? You know, that is the challenge that festivals, you know, that are going to have to have a virtual component. How do you recreate that for your virtual pass holder? And I don't have, like all the answers, you know, I just know that it's going to be a welcome challenge because like I said, you really can't go back at this point. The answer, of course, is Mortal Kombat tournaments. Right. That's that's how you, you know you do yeah. you do the you do the Zoom yelling and right. then you everybody switches to PlayStation Network and then we're we're good. Um so yes, I, I so I so I have to I have to I have to ask you, uh, since we have you on, you you wrote a piece for the Bulwark a couple months back about MGM being for sale again. MGM has sold, you know, it's in it's in the process of selling. Um you you had Amazon at ten to one, which was uh, the Number third three. third most yeah. likely uh option. Um uh what what did you uh what do you make of this deal? Uh, are you surprised that Apple, which was your your favorite, did not get in more uh, aggressively? And and what I I like, I am kind of curious about this deal just from from Amazon's POV because it seems that they uh, they're they're going to have a lot of toys to play with, and I'm not a hundred percent sure they have a great plan for what to do with them. At least. At the very least, uh, what I mean is, I, I don't know what they're going to do that MGM couldn't do, aside from throw money at, at the problem, which is always a good Amazon solution, but, you know. Well, MGM doesn't, you know, sell toothpaste. So that's, right. you know, Amazon's number one reason for existing is trying to, you know, sell you hundreds of dollars of stuff every month. And, you know, the, the prime subscription platform is an added value to their prime members because their prime members buy a lot more stuff than people who are not prime members. So, you know, this is all still a function of, you know, MGM being able to sell you, you know, toothpaste and t-shirts and everything else that, you right. know, you used to just, you know, go down to the corner shop and get. So, uh, you know, 
Am I surprised? No. I mean, you know, Amazon, you know, can really benefit from, you know, having 50% of James Bond, having access to Rocky and, you know, uh, all, you know, all the IPs that MGM owns, um, you know, they're, they're probably going to be able to bring, they have a second window deal with ethics and they'll probably be able to bring all that content in on an exclusive basis, you know, which is another benefit. Mm-hmm. I, am I surprised it's not Apple? I mean, I still am, you know, I mean, I think, you know, Apple and Amazon are both struggling in the sense that Netflix ha- is really great at content right now, even though all or most of the content's not what most people would call terrific. You know, it's just such a, you know, factory and their output is so great that they do have more hits and they have a ton of subscribers, you know, so I, I, I think they are really good at content. And MGM, I'm sorry, Amazon and, and Apple right now, and Apple has some great content, like Ted Lasso is you know, yeah. amazing, yeah. and For All Mankind is terrific. But, you know, they're, they're, they just don't have the subscribers, you know, and Amazon just does not have the engagement, you know, that Netflix has or even Disney Plus has. So, you know, they one of them had to do it. You know, like one of them had to bring MGM in, you know, to try to do better, you know, at what they're not doing great at so far. Uh, Whether it's going to work, you know, we'll see. (laughs) I mean, I just I just don't know. I I don't know what work looks like for Amazon is the thing. I, I still I find their whole strategy to be somewhat weird i the, my big hope and is this is weird. not this is i mean it's it's weird i my big hope and this is not a strategy per se this is not you know me trying to figure out how to best use these resources for amazon but my big hope is that they take that whole library and just put it on prime video and make it an actual place where you can go and see a movie that's older than you know five or ten years old uh and and um, even if they only own half of it, even if, you know, you know, a bunch of that is over at, at Turner and, and Warner's now. Um, but yeah, I, that, that, that would be my big. Yeah. I, I, I share that hope as well. And I also hope that they, you know, don't do, you know, what Disney did with the Fox library and just take everything, all the other revenue streams off the market and just put it up on streaming. Like I still want to be able to, you know, buy RoboCop you know, on mm-hmm. Blu-ray or 4K if if I have that okay. available and, and not have to rely on Amazon streaming. You know, one of my issues with HBO has always been, you know, or HBO Max is like, I want the whole Warner library up there now, you know, yeah. like, and I know they are trying to fight clutter and the fact that it's not easy to get people connected to content that they want to watch. And, you know, over this pandemic, the time from when somebody starts engaging with the platform to when they start watching a movie has grown a lot and the platforms are really conscious of that. And so that's why, you know, HBO doesn't want to put the whole Warner library on there, but I I want the whole MGM library on, on Amazon because, you know, when I want to watch, you know, an MGM title, then that's probably going to be the way most consumers are going to get engaged with it now. Um, But I, 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 I'm going to be a little bit optimistic about it. You know, just because, you know, they have the opportunity to mine, you know, a lot of interesting properties and, you know, it just, it's going to be another destination, another place where 
content's going to get made and content's going to get created for that MGM library. And honestly, MGM wasn't doing the best job in the world, you know, with it either. So it's just a, you know, I, I think I've said this to you before, like the difference between Amazon and Netflix is Netflix does you know, one thing and they do it really, really well. And that's their business model and it's great. Amazon does everything and they do none of it very well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess some of my optimism, you know, isn't justified with that statement, but <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. This it's, is like I, the I, third I, rebirth for Amazon Prime or the third opportunity of rebirth, yeah. you know, yeah, and it is. I I I do like Prime Video because it 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 does have a. I like it because I can pay extra money to get things that aren't included in the service. I mean, this has always been my 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 the big selling point. I think on Prime Video is not the stuff that's free, although that's great. It's the fact that it is like a it is like a virtual blockbuster where yeah. you can yep. you can actually treat it like a video store. It's interesting uh, you say that. Um, you know, I've just recently gotten back into distribution. I've been in exhibition for the last four years, and um, uh, when I was distributing before, iTunes was the market share leader. You know that on, on some titles they would be up to ninety percent of the market. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm back in distribution. Amazon is the market share leader. And it's That's for the reason that you're talking about. It's, you know, people go to Amazon, they'll type in the name of a movie and, you know, it'll come up on Prime or it'll come up on, you know, a, a rental. Uh, I, and that's how people are engaging. And, you know, it, it's driving market share to them. And like I said, they're now the market share leader. They're, they're above iTunes. That's actually really interesting. I mean, I like I I mentioned this to somebody I can't for, I can't remember who uh, a, a couple months back. But but the the idea is for or if I were if I were shaping the store, uh, the idea for me would be to do exactly what I'm saying, like create a place where like it's kind of a it's kind of a lottery. If you go and it's free, great. And if it's not, people are willing to pay two or three or four bucks or whatever to watch it. Uh, but I, I I get the sense that that's almost kind of penny anti stuff for 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 Amazon. Not anymore. They're not No, I mean, yeah, the volume I, of business that they're doing transactionally is just too great, you know. Yeah. And they're 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 trying to get as many subscription platforms as partners as well, like Shutter, so mm -hmm. that when you type in a horror movie, they may not have it on Prime, but Shutter will have the rights for it. And if you sign up through Shutter through Amazon, right. Amazon will get a cut of that subscription revenue. Right. And, you know, for a company like Shutter, it could be up to half of their subscriptions come through wow. Amazon now. Because, again, yeah. people are going to Amazon looking for yeah. the movie and they don't care if they're going to watch it through Amazon or sometimes pay three dollars for it or watch it through Shutter if they just sign up through Shutter through their free two week deal. You know, they just want to watch that specific movie. So the, the only downside to all this is there's been customer confusion and frustration about what's free and what's not free. And you'll start to see now, and you have been starting to see that they're doing a much better job, like in the thumbnail of the film showing what's free and what will be like, they'll put a dollar sign, yeah. you know, on the artwork, if it's going to be a transactional, yeah, you know, I noticed that now that's why, yeah. because yeah. so many people had confusion about what was free and they just led to complaints and you know Amazon's a very you know complaint conscious 
you know, business. And so the more complaints they get, that the more it'll rise up to the top and they'll try to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Uh, well, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. James, was there anything uh, I should have asked? Anything you wanted to say about the state of festivals, distribution, anything? What 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 to, what should the people know? Uh, I mean, things are looking good. Box office is back. <laughs> you know, festivals are coming back. Um, you know, and that's only a good thing. Good, good. Uh, all right. Thanks again for being on the show, James Emanuel Shaparo. Really, really uh, good having you on. Uh, and we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.